0: Welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I am Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We begin with the shockingly anti-Semitic and racist remarks coming from Russia's foreign minister, Lavrov, which have disgusted and infuriated Israel's leaders, who have largely been sitting on the fence, unwilling to criticize Russia for its brutal invasion of Ukraine, much to the fury of Ukraine's Jewish leader, Vladimir Zelensky. Joining us from Israel is Gideon Levy, an Israeli journalist and columnist for Haaretz and a member of the newspaper's editorial board. He is the former spokesman for Shimon Peres and writes the weekly Twilight Zone feature which covers the Israeli occupation of the West Bank and Gaza for over the last 30 years. His latest book is The Punishment of Gaza and we will discuss the change underway in Israel against Russia and in favour of Ukraine in response to Lavrov's remarks that, quote, Hitler had Jewish blood, and the most ardent anti-Semites are usually Jews. Then we'll get an analysis of the front-page series in Sunday's New York Times, American Nationalist Part 1, How Tucker Carlson Stoked White Fear to Conquer Cable, from Angelo Carasone, President and CEO of Media Matters for America, a non-profit described by Bill O'Reilly as, quote, the most dangerous organization in America. A recognized authority on right-wing extremism, Angelo was profiled by The Guardian as a leader of the grassroots resistance activism in the age of Trump, and we will discuss how wrong speculation is that the Murdochs might be distancing themselves from Trump. Now it is apparent from Tucker Carlson's close relationship with Lachlan Murdoch that the owners of Fox are fully on board spreading racist propaganda to mobilize the ranks of the far right in this country to vote and steal the next elections. Then finally we will speak with Jeffrey Frankel, a professor at Harvard University John F. Kennedy School of Government, who served as a member of President Bill Clinton's Council of Economic Advisers, where his responsibilities included international economics, macroeconomics and the environment. We will discuss his article at The Guardian, The West Can Cut Its Energy Dependence on Russia and Be Greener, and how national security concerns and environmental concerns over dependence on Russian energy are not mutually exclusive and alternatives could be a win-win. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising, relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org/slash/donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org, where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as five dollars a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. Joining us now from Israel is Gideon Levy, who's an Israeli journalist and columnist for Haaretz, and a member of the newspaper's editorial board. He's a former spokesman for Shimon Peres, and he writes the weekly Twilight Zone feature, which covers the Israeli occupation of the West Bank and Gaza. And his latest book is The Punishment of Gaza. Welcome to Background Briefing, Gideon Levy.
1: Thank you. It's my pleasure.
0: Well, thanks for joining us, Gideon. And the... Foreign Minister of Russia, Lavrov, was speaking on an Italian broadcasting network and when he was asked about the fact that they're supposedly denazifying Ukraine and how could they be denazifying Ukraine when Ukraine's president, Zelensky, is Jewish, to which Lavrov replied, well, Hitler was part Jewish, and that's really upset Apparently, a lot of people in Israel, including Foreign Minister Yair Lapid, who tweeted out, Foreign Minister Lavrov's remarks are both an unforgivable and outrageous statement, as well as terrible historical error. Jews did not murder themselves in the Holocaust. The lowest level of racism against Jews is to accuse Jews themselves of anti-Semitism. So how much is this resonating in Israel, Gideon?
1: People are quite astonished, I guess. I mean, it is really, if you you look at Levrov, who is supposed to be a serious man, uh, to say such things without any factual basis, but not so ever, with a lot of uh, connotations, because, you know, to blame the Jews. And here, in a very rare moment, I I agree with Foreign Minister Lapid, namely that to accuse the jews for creating hitler is really outrageous outrageous there is some uh, question mark about the grandfather of uh, hitler by the way but never was there any proof that he was jewish he is just unknown he can be also hindu or maybe or maybe muslim or god knows what nobody knows and and it's really unimportant but from a serious veteran foreign minister of Russia to speak like really the last blogist or the last lunatic blogist is really rather rather astonishing.
0: But not only did he say that Hitler also had Jewish blood, he said, wise Jewish people say that the most ardent anti-Semites are usually Jews. That is really bad.
1: Right. No, it's very bad. But it comes in a certain context in which uh, Israel tried to sit on the fence. And now Israel is pushed to the place that it should have been from the beginning, namely to support um, Ukraine without any ifs and buts. But Israel wanted to gain all the worlds, and now it seems it's it's losing both worlds because Uh, Zelensky and Ukraine are really pissed off at Israel and very disappointed by Israel. And now the Russians uh, are beating Israel, at least uh, verbally, and uh, it doesn't show uh, a lot of uh, strategic thinking by Israel.
0: So what is the motive of the Israeli government to sit on the fence and not condemn Russia?
1: Because Israel is uh, uh, quite scared from Russia. Russia is sitting on our northern border in Syria and enables Israel to bomb Iranian uh, transports of weapons uh, landing in uh, Syria. And um, Russia did so for a long time. And Israel is scared that the Russians will stop this. Uh, Israel had also very good relations in uh, Netanyahu's years with Putin personally, and Israel saw that it can jump on both uh, weddings, as we say in Hebrew, both being a strategic ally of the United States and being a friend of Russia. So uh, this, uh, the reality is that this is impossible. But uh, Prime Minister Bennett tried to maintain it somehow for a while. He was even a mediator, quite a ridiculous one, between Russia and Ukraine, as you know, when the purpose was very clear to keep some kind of neutrality of Israel. But Israel cannot be neutral because of the history, because of simple principles of justice, because the entire Western free world supports Ukraine, and, and, and condemns Russia. Israel should be in this camp and not on the fence.
0: And again, I'm speaking with Gideon Levy, who is in Israel. He's an Israeli journalist and columnist for Haaretz and a member of the newspaper's editorial board. He is the former spokesman for Shimon Peres, and he writes the weekly Twilight Zone feature, which covers the Israeli occupation of the West Bank and Gaza for over the last 30 years. And his latest book is The Punishment of Gaza. So how is this translating, then, in popular opinion in Israel?
1: Israelis, I'm afraid, are not so preoccupied with the war in Ukraine. And uh, I don't think it's the issue number one on the Israeli discourse, by all means not. Um, So the, the views differ, but it's not a major issue here. Unfortunately.
0: But in terms of being constrained because of a deal that Israel has with Russia allowing Israeli aircraft to enter Syrian airspace and to bomb targets of Iranian Kurds forces and others which they do on a regular basis along with Hezbollah to stop the arms flow coming in from Iran into Hezbollah. So Given what's happening on the ground in Ukraine, where it turns out that the Russian military is a paper tiger, it's so corrupt because you have a mafia state that's a kleptocracy. And, you know, for example, Putin's cook, Prigozhin, is in charge of procuring food and equipment for the military, and he pockets, you know, maybe up to 90% of the money. And that's one of the reasons why the military is being so appallingly incompetent and being outperformed by a country of what 44 million compared to a country of 150 million. So that military picture doesn't look good. So I'm wondering why Israel is so worried about Russia's military might in Syria, if uh, they're performing so badly in Ukraine. No,
1: no, that's a different uh, scene. In uh, Syria, it is about... uh the Israeli air force bombing, and Russia can quite easily disturb this. You don't need much. That's not an overall war. Here, enough Uh, one precise missile and Israeli jets will be uh, hit, and this is by far not something that Israel wants to happen. Uh, You don't need much capabilities for this.
0: I see. Well, what kind of Pro-Russian lobby exists in Israel because you know obviously there's a lot of emigrants uh, came in from the Soviet Union under the Free Soviet Jewry program, and a number of Russian oligarchs are dual citizens of Israel and uh, Russia. So, what kind of lobby exists that would pressure Bennett not just because of the the military situation in Syria, but in general? To have, I mean, he, as you pointed out, he went to Moscow and sat at the end of that long table with Putin just before the war began and in a fruitless effort to do I don't know what. So give us a sense then, Gideon Levy, of the pro Russian lobby in Israel.
1: There is not really a pro Russian lobby because most of the Russian Jews living here, the Russian immigrants, are anti Putin. So uh, there is not a real lobby. The lobby is mainly the army who wants to keep himself independent and free to fly over Syria and to bomb Syria uh, without any interruptions. Also, the oligarchs who are in Israel, uh, some of them are very critical about Putin and some of them are not really pushing to support Putin. I don't think there is a lobby like this.
0: So, there are some criminal connections, though, aren't there, from yes. Russian organized crime? And what's right. the story there? Because I, I don't I think, know
1: about it enough. I don't know about it enough.
0: Right, right. If the Russian emigres in Israel hate Putin, is there going to be some pressure coming on the government? I mean, you would think that what Lavrov just said, and and we know that it not only did it upset the foreign minister, Yair Lapid, had also had Israeli Prime Minister Naftali Bennett saying about Lavrov's remarks, such lies are meant to blame the Jews themselves for the most terrible crimes in history, and thus free the oppressors of the Jews from their responsibility. So he's uh, spoken out strongly as well. Right. How is this going to translate? Because as you mentioned uh, earlier, Gideon, Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, who's You know, international stature has gone up considerably, and justifiably, I think, he's very upset with Israel.
1: Sure. Look, it depends now much on the Russians. I mean, will they really deteriorate their relations with Israel, and then Israel will have a problem? Uh, Slowly, slowly, Israel is uh, moving toward Ukraine, but as usual, too little and too late. And time will show uh, how far will Israel get. Israel was already ready to send some helmets and uh, some other stuff to to Ukraine, but it's quite uh, minimal and far satisfying the expectations of Ukraine from Israel. And time will show. I think that Israel will have to change attitude because uh, you can't sit on the fence and you can't support Russia in those days.
0: What do you think the basis of the friendship that Netanyahu had with Putin? Because after all, it's pretty clear now that Putin has always been a a kleptocrat and a a murderer. I mean, he rose to power in Russia in 1999 by blowing up a bunch of apartment buildings, killing 300 of his own citizens.
1: Yeah, but you know, in international relations, it's all about interests, And some of Israel's friends are very brutal dictators all over the world. And as long as it serves the interests of both sides. So uh, it served it, and it did serve the interests of both sides.
0: So at the end of the day, then, if you say that there's pragmatism in international relations and uh, morality doesn't play a part, it does seem that the moral outrage in the world is such about what's happening in Ukraine. It's not going to go away. It looks like Putin is going to double down and get more and more brutal and just right. literally destroy the country. So I don't know that anybody can sit on the fence forever, can they?
1: That's what I say. The impossible, and I think very soon Israel will have to make up its mind.
0: Well, Gideon Levy, I thank you very much for joining us here today. My pleasure.
1: Thank you very much.
0: And I've been speaking with Gideon Levy, who is in Israel, where he's an Israeli journalist and columnist for Haaretz and a member of the Newspapers Editorial Board. He's the former spokesman for Shimon Peres and writes the weekly Twilight Zone feature, which covers the Israeli occupation of the West Bank and Gaza for over the last 30 years. And his latest book is The Punishment of Gaza. We're going to take a brief station break and back discussing how wrong speculation is that the Murdochs might be distancing themselves from Trump now that it's apparent from Tucker Carlson's close relationship with Lachlan Murdoch that the owners of Fox are fully on board spreading racist propaganda to mobilize the ranks of the far right in this country to vote and steal the next elections.
2: Until the philosophy which old one race, superior and another Inferior is finally and permanently discredited and abandoned. Everywhere is war.
0: Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24 7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Angelo Carasone, who's president and CEO of Media Matters for America, a nonprofit described by Bill O'Reilly as the most dangerous organization in America. Angelo is a recognized authority on right-wing extremism and was profiled by The Guardian as a leader of the grassroots-resistant activism in the age of Donald Trump. Welcome to Background Briefing, Angelo Carazon. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And what did you make of the large <laughs> front-page article in Sunday's New York Times, which is part one of a series of articles called American Nationalist Part One, How Tucker Carlson Stoked White Fear to Conquer Cable? It struck me as as sort of exploding something that I, th- I had assumed, one, that the fact that Lachlan Murdoch, who apparently is very close to uh, Tucker mm-hmm. Carlson, according to the New York Times piece, but I assume the fact that he moved back to Australia, it was almost like they'd lost control of people like Tucker Carlson, and how could you run a media uh, empire from Australia with a different time zone? And then the recent uh, there were some recent reports that the upcoming interview that Piers Morgan did with Donald Trump for his new show on Fox uh, they showed clips of it where Trump had a meltdown and walked off the studio. That would indicate maybe that the Murdochs are trying to distance themselves from Trump. But I must say the New York Times piece disabused me of those ideas. How did it strike you?
3: Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, there's a couple threads to, uh, there with the piece. I mean, one is it was a really thorough analysis of Tucker's sort of uh, embrace uh, of white nationalism. And I think that... You know, it's often said, I mean, even a couple of years ago when we were doing a lot of work about the change that Tucker had sort of taken, um, or at least the intensification of this white supremacy, we had written this large piece of research about Tucker's descent into white nationalism. And this was three years ago, and it's only gotten worse since then. So that was one th- thread. The second part, which is what you referenced, that's the one that really stuck out to me. I wasn't terribly surprised uh, or really deep enriched at all by the under, you know the, the Times reporting about the white nationalism Uh, I just think they did an amazing job in their analysis. But the stuff that was, I think, very jarring was the alignment between Lackland and Tucker and what the reporting actually revealed. And not only does it show that there's a personal alignment there, but, you know, when you start to unpackage it at its core, Fox News is is Tucker Carlson's operation now, that the entire network really revolves around him. It can't really exist without Tucker, um, not just in its current form, but in the future, because he's the only host. And that's so terrifying to me that has really been able to demonstrate their ability to move the Fox News audience into subscriptions, um, into holding back any blowback or criticism from from the Fox audience, into having any meaningful sway over them. So to me, the, the way I would summarize it is that in much the same way, that Donald Trump was able to leapfrog Roger Ailes back in 2016 and sort of take hold of the Fox audience. Tucker did that, but from the inside. Um, And it's worse now because at least Rupert Murdoch, not that he was a moderating influence, but it was sort of a strange bedfellows with him and Trump. In this case, Lachlan is fully on board with the ethno-nationalism of Tucker. And that means that Fox will only burn brighter and hotter uh, in the coming months and years.
0: And Lachlan Murdoch did make a recent speech in Australia that indicated his far-right views and his war on wokeness. And yeah. That's essentially what Fox mm-hmm. has become, as, as has the, the Republican Party. Essentially, they're all about trolling and culture wars.
3: That's right. And that's, you know, that's only, it's not just good for ratings, but it's also a their way of shaping the contours of the political debate. Because... You know, one thing to keep in mind here is that part of the Republican and sort of conservative strategy, and and it was really embraced by Trump's campaign, was, you know, instead of getting out their own people to vote uh, or persuading others, their shift was to organize power increasingly on what used to be considered the fringes. I mean, there were 800,000 new voters in Pennsylvania alone, and more than 600,000 of them were for Trump. And that trend was pretty... we're pretty consistent across the board that where there were new people signing up, registering to vote, joining, it was mostly far right people that were, and that is a reflection of the strategy that the right wing has employed these days. And so when I bring it back around to the culture war stuff, what that means is that the kinetic energy, which ultimately can be translated into political power, is being fueled in part by these culture wars that Fox has stoked in. We really shouldn't diminish the potential here. I think that some things get lost, but this is way more intense than previous culture wars. On, I mean, I remember 20 years ago when Roger, uh, when when Bill O'Reilly was engaged in a culture war against abortion providers, um, he was targeting one man in particular, Dr. Tiller, who was assassinated in church by, you know, a, a conservative who really embraced the, the 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 idea that he was the worst person in the country according to Bill O'Reilly, and I would say that 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 eight month arc pales in comparison to the intensity that we're seeing on Fox these days. So it is a part about political power. And so the nature of the programming allows them to harness the, the kinetic energy and to control the contours of the discussion that they can translate into political power. And then simultaneous to that happening, they're also engaging very explicit political exercises. So Tucker Carlson go into Iowa, for instance, uh, in play, uh, that is, it's not because I think he's running for president. It's because he's making himself present to the individuals that are going to have a lot of political influence as the primaries heat up. Or Lachlan Murdoch flying all the way to Washington D.C. for Bill Barr's book party, just to f- immediately turn around and fly back so that he could be a presence um, at a at, at what was a an influential political event in conservative circles. So. I do think that the culture war stuff has two dimensions to it and I, it does give us a sort of keyhole view of what I think is going to end up becoming sort of this du- duo of Tucker and Lachlan not just discussing engaging in the contours of what's discussed um but also in really flexing explicit political power and you know this is the moment for them because keep in mind this is the, the first time in maybe 30 years that Rush Limbaugh is not the single largest get out the vote operation uh, in in terms of, you know, uh, our, our, our elections. So there is a bit of a, a vacuum and a void that is very much being filled by, by this duo. And it does seem deliberate and intentional.
0: And again, I'm speaking with Angela Carasone, who's president and CEO of Media Matters for America, a nonprofit described by Bill O'Reilly as the most dangerous organization in America. Angelo is a recognized authority on right-wing extremism, and was profiled by The Guardian as a leader of the grassroots resistant activism in the age of Donald Trump. And of course, Tucker Carlson spent a week in Budapest, sort of mm-hmm. worshipping at the at the altar of the kleptocrat and autocrat mm-hmm. Viktor Orban. And there's no question that uh, Republican circles see uh, Orban's autocratic electoral capture as the as the future of the Republican Party and. That's also being championed, is it not, by uh, Tucker Carlson?
3: Absolutely. I think that what they are looking to, and, you know, Orban is an example of both the ideology and the political process playing out. You know, Orban, in a way, what makes Hungary, they're having a lot of comparisons there, is that, you know, his stranglehold on the news media, the way that he leverages it is... Exactly what Fox would want here, um, which is a you know virtually no dissent and just a, a, a sort of a, a range of far right figures or aligned far right figures that are in, in the news media. The ethno-nationalism is ideologically consistent. And the idea, and Tucker's engaged in this, that democracy is just not that good. I mean, this is what Tucker argues all the time, that it is it is just not that good at its core. And they the reason they emphasize and identify with Orban so much is not just that he did it. So they don't just point to it from a process perspective, but then they point to it from an example that this is this is what success could look like, that it is possible to to engage in these actions, to seize power in this way, to maintain it and um, that everything gets better as a result of it. And what you need is catalyzing figures and at its core, what Orban provides for them is a extension of, you know, a lot of conservatives these days, just, they organize themselves around owning the libs, you know, that's all they want to do is sort of stick it to, to liberals and progressives. Uh, and that, that, but that's not an end on itself that, you know, and what they need is something to show that you can actually push back against liberals in a way that gets you power. And so Orban is not just a, you know, sort of a way to scratch the itch of sticking it to liberals. what. What's more dastardly about it, I think, is that it is a a, a a sign of hope for them that you can that you can have your cake and eat it too, that you can simultaneously engage in the culture wars, um, not just for the sake of the culture wars themselves, but that they can in turn be used to harness uh, and build political power, and that you could lead to to you know in this case Orban, but here they would say it's 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 not only possible, but that it's essential. And so the same targets that Orbán engage in, that's what they would target. And their conversations increasingly r- reflect that, uh, you know, social media, members of the media, a few key figures like George Soros and other sort of external enemies that they would identify. Um, and that's that is that is the part that's that's troubling, is that they really have embraced sort of this autocracy and uh, and justify the means might makes right approach to all kinds of civic engagement. And so. At its core, what the article reveals, what this alignment reveals, is not just that Tucker is an outlier at Fox News anymore, but that he has the full-throated embrace of the Murdochs, uh, and that's a really powerful system uh, and set of mechan- mechanics to put behind uh, a, not just a you know a conservative ideology around tax policy or you know around foreign policy. That's but that's a lot of influence to put behind an extreme ethno-nationalist radicalization sort of mentality that is spearheaded by Tucker Carlson. And um, it's I think it's it's foreboding, not just in what we learn, but, but what it means for where we go from here.
0: Well, for the longest time, Fox News has been a kind of dark mirror of Pravda, you know, the Pravda of the mm-hmm. Republican Party. And um, I used to work on arms control during the Cold War and spent a lot of time in the Soviet Union. And, and I met with a bunch of reporters for Tas and Pravda, etc. And you kind of felt sorry for them because they literally had to push the party line. But the idea in a free democratic country like ours that you would volunteer to be the Ministry of Information for a party or a government—it just seems so un-American. And the idea that—I mean, we know that Tucker Carlson worships both Orban. And Putin, well, Mm -hmm. they're the embodiment that proves that propaganda works, right? And Fox is a propaganda outfit. They are. It's a
3: total propaganda outfit. And what Tucker, Tucker, I think, is going to be, you know, what Tucker represents is not just it's raw propaganda, to your point, but an iteration of that. And it's sort of the next step, because... You know, there are a few figures, and you really think about it, at least in, in terms of American context, and I think this is the part that makes Tucker uniquely threatening, is you know if you go back over the biggest propagandists, especially from the right wing over, you know, 20 years or so, they were, all had, you know, between three and five hours of programming a day. They all had powerful radio shows um, that allowed for them to reach much larger audiences than their TV shows did. They all had very extensive Daily communications operations and really, really, really big audiences. Tucker doesn't have that. Tucker doesn't have a radio show. Tucker produces four live shows a week, one's pre recorded typically, one hour a day. This is a guy that is not producing a ton of content, and yet he has a disproportionate amount of influence, and that's because what he has figured out um, and re- represents is the next step in that propaganda operation. What he does is pluck things out from the most extreme fever swamps, converts them into propagandized stories that serve larger objectives that can be digestible and distributed, and then feeds it back into the very echo chamber um, that he, he or his producers plucked it from. And so what he really has done is intensify and speed up the feedback loop. Um, by which he doesn't need to be pounding away and spewing venom for three hours a day, like Limbaugh or Hannity. Um, in fact, he just needs to find one or two good kernels uh, and polish them a little bit, produce them in a way that allows for them to be fed back into the system, um, and the amplification on that is is tenfold. So his reach is actually bigger than any of his peers, past or present, um, that have had much larger direct audiences simply because he's found a way to short circuit uh, and exploit the the changes in the information ecosystem. And I think from a propaganda perspective, and that's what this is. What we don't have um, as journalists, as members of the media, uh, as you know, as communicators, what we have, what what we really lack right now in the states um, is not just an appreciation for the threat of the propaganda itself, but for the 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 way in which Tucker has actually optimized it, um, we're far behind, which in turn means we don't have appropriate, you know, antibodies or countermeasures in the system to to slow down the potential destructive effects of that. Uh, and that that is, I think, the part that's very jarring.
0: Well, there's never been anybody so openly racist in the American media, has there, since Father Cochran? I mean, and it's it, right. I, I find Carlson's racism. It's not your kind of, you know, redneck, tattooed, Nazi kind of racism. It's a sort of genteel racism of a privileged guy, right? His family came out of a beer fortune, didn't they?
3: That's right, and yes, and you know, uh, um, and and sort of in dinners and uh, you know, frozen dinners and other things. He's a he's a rich guy, and I think that the one thing that is unsettling about this, in a way that is, he, he is a he is a, a a fully out and out racist, um, but it's worse in a way because he's not just a racist on a personal level, he's systematically racist. He believes that um, that like should be with like and that America's weakness fundamentally is that we don't have sufficient white people. And what he in turn has leveraged, and this is reflected in his narratives, is he, his primary vehicle for implementing that kind of change. Is to spin up and to spin spit back out to his audience a a polished, almost acceptable form of racism that is not just advocating for racism in itself, but in but for solutions for driving people out of public life, for a different vision of America that is not just one based on nostalgia, but rather based on the idea that um, we are stronger when when we don't have enough white Europeans. Um, and that everybody else is dragging us down. And he really does explicitly make these arguments on a greater, on a regular basis. And the other thing about it is, it it is deeply anti-Semitic. So most recently, just just two weeks ago, Tucker Carlson repeatedly said, and this is right before Elon Musk put in his bid to buy Twitter, uh, Tucker was was going on air every night saying that the single most important reason for um, Elon Musk to purchase Twitter was that it meant that the, Amer- uh, the the Anti-Defamation League would no longer be in control of free speech. The second biggest reason, of course, was that Media Matters would no longer be in control of free speech, But according to Tucker. But the first one was an, all, was an all-out assault against the ADL. And you don't really need to have a, uh, you know you don't need to be a dog to hear that dog whistle which is, you know, the argument he was making was that and and has um, was that Jewish people have too much control over social media and that they were actively censoring the very ideas that you and I had just been talking about that um, and that and then and the reason that they were censoring it is because of great replacement theory that in Tucker's and this is something that Tucker says on a on a regular basis. And I think it illustrates your point before about someone being so openly racist these days. Tucker's key argument and narrative is that Jewish people and democratic elites are engaged in a conspiracy to dilute the white population in America so that they can replace them with people of color in order to ensure durable political power. And that is not just racist, it is horribly anti-Semitic. It is old school tropes that, are, are, uh, that, be, that he is reinf- injecting into our public life. And he does it in such a way that up until this time story, I can't tell you the number of mainstream reporters that I would fight about with that would push back against media matters characterization as Tucker Carlson um, as somebody who promotes white supremacy. They would say, oh, you just have an ideology, you can't prove that. And that I think is a testament to the insidiousness that he represents when it comes to his advocacy for these ideas.
0: Well, I thank you for joining us, Angelo. Thank you. But we have to remind ourselves in the audience, surely, that as bad and dangerous as Tucker Carlson is, his main enablers, Rupert Murdoch and Lachlan True. Murdoch, are probably the most dangerous people on the planet.
3: Here, here, I agree with you.
0: Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Angelo Carasone, who's president and CEO of Media Matters for America, a nonprofit described by Bill O'Reilly as the most dangerous organization in America. Angelo is a recognized authority on right-wing extremism and was profiled by The Guardian as a leader of the grassroots resistance activism in the age of Donald Trump. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into how national security concerns and environmental concerns over dependence on Russian energy are not mutually exclusive and alternatives could be a win-win. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Jeffrey Frankel, He's a professor at Harvard University's John F. Kennedy School of Government. He served as a member of President Bill Clinton's Council of Economic Advisers, where his responsibilities included international economics, macroeconomics, and the environment. And he has an article at The Guardian, The West Can Cut Its Energy Dependence on Russia and Be Greener. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jeffrey Frankel
4: thank you good to be with you
0: well thanks for joining us and i guess your article points out that national security concerns about energy coming out of the of the war in ukraine and the environment and concerns about the environment are not mutually exclusive right it's possible to have a win win absolutely and where would you say we are heading at this point
4: well that's that's hard to hard to tell i think we're doing some things wrong. I think insulating consumers from the uh, cost of retail products, gasoline, or as in, in Europe, they're doing some other retail products. I think that's, that's a mistake. I understand the, where the motivation comes from. Um, I think that shutting down nuclear power plants is a mistake. And when I say mistake, I mean, these are things that hurt global warming and also impede our ability to punish Russia in the form of Reducing demand for Russian oil. But uh, we're also doing some things right. I think we're released from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, which President Biden is doing in cooperation with other countries and from their own oil stockpiles, helps uh, substituting for Russian oil.
0: The Germany Central Bank said last week that an abrupt halt on the imports of gas, Russian gas, would push the economy into a deep recession, losing 650,000 jobs and a 6.5 drop in its annual economic output. So is that a reasonable concern on the part of the Germans?
4: It's a reasonable concern, but I've seen uh, statements from uh, signed by quite a few German economists that uh, say that the effect would be pretty small um, and that uh, they're in favor of uh, cutting off German imports of fossil fuels from Russia. And also, if the Germans are the ones who are busy shutting down their nuclear power plants on a long term plan ever since the Japanese disaster at fukushima, and uh, they they just closed they closed three nuclear power plants and December and are planning on closing three during the rest of the year, I would think leaving them open, uh, reopening the ones that closed in December and keeping open the ones that are still going would uh, substitute a lot uh, in a way that, uh, substitute a lot for energy imports from from Russia and do it in a way that's not expensive and reduce emissions of greenhouse gases.
0: Well, the Germans have announced that they support the European ban on imports of Russian oil and that they won't be blackmailed by Moscow into paying for natural gas in rubles. And we all know, of course, that Poland and Bulgaria have been cut off by the Russians. So when you talk about needing to reopen the nuclear plants, and obviously nuclear plants, to build new ones, takes decades often. To build LNG terminals, it takes a couple of years. Why aren't the Europeans thinking about putting up more wind farms. They don't take that long to put up, do they? And that wouldn't that help increase the amount of electricity?
4: Yes. Uh, of course, switching from fossil fuels to renewables like uh, wind and solar energy is a uh, major uh, win-win in terms of good for the environment and the reduced dependence on, on Russian oil. So that's definitely a big part of the solution. Um, they have already moved in that direction over the years and uh, I think are going to try to move more strongly in that direction. But Germany has same some of the same problems that uh that we do. That where do you whose land do you put the, do you put the windmills on? Um, it's 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 uh, not a lot of open space, especially in in Germany. And they don't have a lot of uh, good offshore locations to do it. There's solar, but uh, they don't get that much sunshine in Germany. But nevertheless, that is the way they should. That is the direction they should move. In in addition to my feeling that they should leave open the nuclear power plants.
0: And in terms of what's happening here in the United States, obviously you mentioned earlier opening up the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. What about suggestions that we don't need the Petroleum Reserve anymore, at least we don't need it in the short term, because uh, the U.S. is a net exporter of oil now?
4: Yes, well, one doesn't have to decide where to come down on that to be in favor of releasing oil now. If you think that we don't need a strategic petroleum reserve in the long term, that would be a reason not to refill the reserve after we uh, release some of it. And and, uh, one can argue it either either way. But I think there's a clear national security argument for, for spending some of it, and that would help deal with the problem. This is what the SPRO, the SBR, was designed for, to deal with this sort of strategic challenge.
0: And again, we're speaking with Jeffrey Frankel, who's a professor at Harvard University, John F. Kennedy School of Government. He served as a member of President Bill Clinton's Council of Economic Advisers, where he was responsible for international economics, macroeconomics, and the environment. And he has an article at The Guardian, The West Can Cut Its Energy Dependence on Russia and Be Greener. So... Your article also talks about the International Monetary Fund has estimated that global energy subsidies, including for oil, and natural gas, as well as coal, exceed $5 trillion a year, and that direct U.S. fossil fuel subsidies alone have been conservatively estimated at $20 billion annually. So that would seem to me to be a low-hanging fruit, isn't it?
4: Absolutely. I mean, many of us think we should be taxing uh, coal and other fossil fuels, but at a minimum, you shouldn't be uh, subsidizing them. And uh, the subsidies are in the U.S. Uh, in particular, but other other countries as well. They're less than they used to be, but they they, they shouldn't be there shouldn't be any subsidies at all. It's just uh, bad for the environment, bad for the budget bad. for It's it's distortionary. And that that applies to coal and oil and natural gas. It's one thing to open up uh, leases on federal land for for drilling. It's another thing to charge prices that are below the market price, which is what the U.S. has often done in the past. Um, There's no reason. That that constitutes a subsidy. There's no no reason not to charge full market price for any leases that uh, are opened up on federal land.
0: So when you say that Global petroleum subsidies amount to an estimated, what, $1.5 trillion a year? Is that right?
4: Well, globally it was $5 trillion. $5 Sorry, trillion. Total, yeah. Yeah. total, total fossil fuels. I mean, that that estimate, I should say, is perhaps a little out of date. I don't have the most up-to-date numbers.
2: Hmm.
0: Well, it does seem, though, that the oil and coal business have got a champion in the chairman of the Senate Energy Committee. Joe Manchin. He's in the coal business himself. It's his family business. And recently he asked, why are we subsidizing electric cars? So what do you do about that anomaly of having somebody that's so vested in the fossil fuel economy in such a powerful position?
4: Well, hopefully you uh, outvote him. Uh, he's also the make-or-break, you know, 50th member of the Democratic caucus in the Senate, so his vote is necessary on all kinds of things. And in the case of uh, the case of Cole, he's I guess he thinks he's serving the interest of his state, but he's uh, he's way off way off base, and I think you're probably not going to change his mind or his vote. But uh, if if there were uh, more votes in the Senate. Saw things in a sensible way. You could you could uh, put up with uh, uh, some some contrary votes from someone from a coal state.
0: So, is there anybody that's messaging though the way that you're arguing in your piece in the Guardian, Jeffrey Frankel? In other words, are we hearing it from Biden and others? I mean, the the impression I get is that. The Biden administration is so much on the defensive because American people don't like inflation, and gas prices are a major driver of inflation. And they're just trying to find oil wherever they can find it, uh, including, you know, Venezuela, uh, et cetera. So, is that sort of missing the point that you're trying to make?
3: Well, I
4: think uh, they understand the point I'm trying to make, and we'd in, be in favor of measures that would both benefit the environment and uh, cut down on dependence on Russian fossil fuels. But there is politics, and the price of gasoline is very sensitive politically. It's a price that the consumers see all the time uh, in big, big letters, and it's 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 uh, known to be uh, highly politically sensitive. So I I understand. The temptation, for example, to have a gas tax holiday, but I have to say, as an economist, it would just be, be terrible. And you you can uh, make some transfers to people, to low income people, if you're worried about the, the effect of a higher price of gasoline on low income people. But it's just we need we need to tax energy, not subsidize it, and uh, that's for a number of goals.
0: But in terms of Joe Manchin, wondering why we. Should why we give subsidies to electric cars. I mean, as Americans feel pain at the pump, if they had electric cars, they wouldn't be going to the pump in the first place. How do you get that message across or get people to understand that you don't have to be addicted to oil, at least if you have a car? And that would therefore argue that we should go ex- ex- go in the opposite direction to, to what Joe Manchin is suggesting. We should subsidise electric cars even more, shouldn't we?
4: Yes, and uh, Biden has plans to uh, subsidise the uh, recharging stations, which is a, sort of a good way of doing it. That's that. That's right. It's a what we economists call an externality. That if you uh, create uh, pollution, you don't have to bear the cost of it. You'll get you'll get you get too too much of it, and, it, and so the right thing to do is. Uh, Either tax the high-polluting energy sources, which would be coal in particular, or, and together with uh, subsidizing low-carbon energy sources, which which electric cars are part of, it depends, of course, how the electricity is generated. If you generate electricity by coal, then then you're back where you started. But the idea is to generate more by alternative. Sources and we can we can do that for home heating and all kinds of things, but the vehicle transportation is the one thing where you got to carry it around uh, with you, and that has meant gasoline, which of course is derived from oil up until now. But electric vehicles offer an alternative.
0: Well, the Biden administration announced today that they're investing uh, several billions in lithium-ion batteries. I think do you know what the nature of that investment would be. Would it be in in mining for the metals needed or building manufacturing plants?
4: Well, I don't think the government's going to build manufacturing plants, but but
0: subsidizing uh, subsidizing research in the area,
4: because getting uh, more effective uh, storage capacity is key to not not just uh, electric cars, but the... uh, the the whole re, uh, des- desire to increase the share of renewables in our energy set outlook. As we say, when the sun doesn't shine or the wind doesn't blow, then you don't you can't get the solar or wind power, and you really need to be able to s- store it up in w- when when the weather conditions are right in order to have it when weather conditions are not right. So batteries are are, are really important. And, in time... and uh, there is. Go ahead. there there is there, sorry there is the issue of dependence on uh, I think you mentioned dependence on certain minerals, lithium, and some rare minerals which are part of this, and uh, many of them are produced cheaply in China, and we've sort of newly come to appreciate the vulnerability of being dependent on a single source for um, for a product, particularly if that's a source that might not be lied to us politically. And uh, I think we will move away from China, dependence on China f- for these rare earth metals, for example,
0: develop it in other places. But you also advocate a carbon tax to reduce our dependence on fossil fuels.
4: Absolutely. I mean, that's, I think, every economist or conservative, liberal, Republican, Democrat, Really thinks that the right answer to all these problems is uh, to most of these problems is a is a carbon tax, and then like a lot of the other steps, people say, oh, that's not politically possible. Americans would never never go for it, and I think that's true currently. But uh, things things can change. It is the most efficient way of achieving the goals of reducing emissions of greenhouse gases, and generates revenue that you can use to compensate people who are for example low-income people if that's what you're worried about and there are places where you wouldn't have thought that it'd be politically possible to have a gasoline tax or something that's more roughly equivalent which is tradable emission permits but uh, we thought that about europe uh, 20 years ago and europe today has the ets emissions trading system so i think the politics
0: can change so what are, are these auctions of tradable permits that you advocate for? What is that the same as what the Europeans have?
4: Yes, um and British Columbia and there's some others some, some some experiments within the within the US what we've got so far is mostly uh, just the power sector whereas ideally it would include all the carbon and, and other greenhouse gases that are that are emitted but uh, the idea is you require that a permit be possessed or used for for every ton of carbon emitted into the atmosphere and you create a limited number of such uh, permits and then you let firms and people trade them so that uh, someone who is able to con- switch to technology and conserve on use of fossil fuel energy can do that and sell the permits and make a profit doing that. They have an incentive to do it. Whereas if you're in some industry that just can't cut energy or cut uh, carbon dependence, you can buy those permits. And uh, that is the efficient way of of doing it. And again, it generates uh, revenue that can be used to cut other taxes or um, however you want.
0: So just in closing then, Jeffrey Frankel, in terms of, you know, obviously there needs to be more education done about, about the environmental damage coming from the fossil fuels, and uh, people should be aware of the weather changes and massive storms and droughts and fires, etc. and floods. But would it also, in terms of trying to get a public education program going, would it also help to explain to people how the money that they spend on gasoline and oil products go into the pockets of people like Vladimir Putin and uh, Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi Arabia and all these other despotic regimes around the world from these corrupt petro-states. I mean, we are subsidizing some of the worst people in the world. The Europeans are subsidizing Putin's aggression against Ukraine to the tune of $1 billion a day.
4: Yeah, I think that is a message that that could be... uh, Usefully con- conveyed just uh, to have the government tell people how to uh, to conserve on energy isn't doesn't get you very far. Um, and people are suspicious of the things that the government says. But the current context of the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the um, desire to uh, retaliate against Russia and, and the hope that that will that making them pay a price for their aggression will influence behavior, if not now, then in the future, that is something that uh, I think people can understand. There's a lot of sympathy around the country, regardless of where you are in the political spectrum for for Ukraine, and then probably greater recognition of the downside of supporting autocrats in oil-producing states, as you referred to. In the past, we've, I think we've distorted foreign policy uh, probably too much to, uh, to keep the oil flowing, and we don't need to do that anymore because we're self-sufficient in oil. Okay. And the costs of that, of having done that in the past, I think are more apparent. We haven't really needed to send troops to the, mid, to the Persian Gulf as much as often as we have, it's, and it's uh, cost us a lot. And uh, I think. It's hard to deny that uh, oil is one of the reasons why we've done that.
0: Well, Jeffrey Frankel, I thank you very much for joining us here today.
4: Well, thank you very much.
0: And again, I've been speaking with Jeffrey Frankel, who's a professor at Harvard University's John F. Kennedy School of Government, and he served as a member of President Bill Clinton's Council of Economic Advisers, where he was responsible for international economics, macroeconomics, and the environment. And he has an article at The Guardian, The West Can Cut Its Energy Dependence on Russia and Be Greener. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org
2: Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine.